Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. exactly is the noble lie and how does it relate to American history, American mythology, and as well to current events? Make America great again, he said. But when exactly was it great and for whom? Asks filmmaker Raoul Peck. That is a question we need to delve into in some detail because the exploration of that question may potentially lead us into some very dark places. But we need to face the past and take an honest, unflinching look at it. What we'll discover along the way is that it may not fit in with things like the American dream that seem to be increasingly elusive for so many people today, especially people of color. People have always been curious about the past, but we have a moral obligation not only to confront the past, we need to try and understand it too. We need to make sense of it, such as the advice of Dr. Michael Berenbaum, director of the Siggy Zering Holocaust Institute. Understanding how various iterations of the noble lie have been used in America's past history not only serves as a helpful paradigm for interpreting the events of the past, it can also serve as a roadmap or a guide going forward in the era of Trumpism, QAnon, and a multitude of other conspiracy theories currently running rampant. America is a deeply divided, polarized nation whose situation seems to be far worse after four years of Trump, unless, of course, that is, you're a Trumpist. If that's the case, you're holding on to the newest noble lie that Trump is magically going to be reinstated as president in August of 2021. Joe Biden will simply be told to move out of the White House and... Trump will be back in charge, just like that. Reality and fantasy are blurring in all too real ways, it seems now. After reading twice through Jared Yates Sexton's book, American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and interviewing him for a podcast episode on the book recently, I felt like I needed to take an even deeper dive into the official narrative of American history. Hopefully, this interview will help you gain a better understanding of not only the past, but as I said, may also provide you with a roadmap for navigating the future. For Jared, it all began when a person at a book signing event asked him a question about how in the world America could elect a person like a Donald Trump. Wasn't that a sign that there was something deeply, horribly wrong with the country? To answer that question, Jared put forth the idea that not only was America founded on several different noble lies, the effects of those myths are still very much with us today. Incidentally, in his 2017 book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History, author Kurt Anderson argues very much the same thing, that essentially America itself was founded on a series of fantasies, and that it has become a place where literally anyone can be or become anything he or she wants to be. Once you begin to understand that paradigm about America, so much of it all starts to make sense. For example, in the introduction to the book, he states, quote, 
the American experiment, the original embodiment of the great enlightenment idea of intellectual freedom, every individual free to believe anything she wishes, has metastasized out of control. From the start, our ultra-individualism was attached to epic dreams, sometimes epic fantasies. Every American, one of God's chosen people, building a custom-made utopia, each of us free to reinvent himself by imagination and will. And he goes on, little by little for centuries, then more and more and faster and faster during the last half century, Americans have given themselves over to all kinds of magical thinking, anything goes relativism, small and large fantasies that console or terrify us. And most of us haven't realized how far reaching our strange new normal has become, end quote. So if you're up for it, come along with me on this journey of discovery. Just as a warning, this is going to be a long episode with a lot of information. So sit down, pour yourself a drink, or if you're driving, concentrate on the road. Let's see where this thing takes us. We want to understand not only what the noble lie is, we need to relate it to what has become American mythology too, the accepted versions of American history. So, the noble lie. Let's start by unpacking the basic concept. Where does it all come from, this idea of the noble lie? Well, the idea of the noble lie dates back to the Greek philosopher Plato in his 3rd century BCE work, The Republic. Less philosophically inclined or educated people, he believed, could not fully grasp belief systems, or the origin stories of a civilization if it was explained in a blunt, straightforward philosophical manner. In a 2008 article in The Daily Cost, the basic concept of the noble lie is explained as follows, quote, Plato talked about the noble lie that he said that rulers must maintain in order to keep social cohesion. In other words, in order for a group of people to build an identity as a nation, they must center themselves around a common narrative, even if it involves a noble lie, end quote. According to Cat and Parteni in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, quote, For Plato, we should live according to what reason is able to deduce from what we regard as reliable evidence. This is what real philosophers like Socrates do. But the non-philosophers are reluctant to ground their lives on logic and arguments. They have to be persuaded. One means of persuasion is myth. Myth inculcates beliefs. It is efficient in making the less philosophically inclined as well as children believe noble things, end quote. In other words, the noble lie is a myth or even a blatant untruth that can be used to advance a particular agenda or to maintain harmony within a society. This is not a new concept at all. It's been used for millennia. For example, Raoul Peck in his HBO documentary series Exterminate All the Brutes comments that, quote, all modern nation states claim a kind of rationalized origin story upon which they fashion patriotism or loyalty to the state, end quote. It's another way to articulate this concept of the noble lie. In the case of America, much of this was based on the Calvinist doctrine of predestination and election. Being one of the elect gave them the right to implement God's will and thus rightly eliminate the native people. Peck notes that the Puritans, as well as later American settlers, quote, regarded themselves as chosen people of the covenant commanded by God to go into the wilderness to build the new Israel, end quote. But how can one determine the difference between the elect and the non-elect, since this is all based on the prior foreknowledge of God before you were even born? As they came to see it, white skin and material wealth became the markers of divine blessing. Conversely, bad fortune and dark skin became clear evidence of damnation. The attractiveness of such a doctrine becomes immediately apparent. That is, if you happen to have been lucky enough to have been born with the right skin pigmentation. 
The nobili is useful in that the leaders of a nation or society use it to justify a wide variety of actions. In his work, The Republic, Plato describes how the noble lie functions in society as follows, quote, How then may we devise one of those needful falsehoods of which we lately spoke, just one royal lie which may deceive the rulers, if that be possible, and at any rate the rest of the city, end quote. The noble lie is also closely associated with a concept that Adolf Hitler referred to as the big lie, a phrase that he apparently coined in his 1925 political autobiography Mein Kampf, written during his year-long stint in Landsberg prison for his treasonous and failed attempt to overthrow the German government, his trial and subsequent fame from the book actually worked in his favor and made him more popular than ever. Within eight years of his release from prison, he would become the undisputed leader of Germany. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the big lie is, quote, a gross distortion or misrepresentation of the facts, especially when used as a propaganda device by a politician or official body, end quote. For Hitler, the big lie was as follows. In his revisionist history in Mein Kampf, it was actually the Jews who were behind the false belief that it was General Ludendorff's incompetence as a military leader that was actually to blame for Germany's defeat in World War I. Thus, not only did Hitler and the Nazis blame international Jewry for starting the war, they were also responsible for the stab-in-the-back betrayal that cost Germany its rightly deserved victory. Hitler wrote the following statement in Mein Kampf, quote, but it remained for the Jews, with their unqualified capacity for falsehood and their fighting comrades, the Marxists, so of course he has to tie the communists in there too, he goes on, to impute responsibility for the downfall precisely to the man who alone had shown a superhuman will and energy in his effort to prevent the catastrophe which he had foreseen and to save the nation from that hour of complete overthrow and shame. By placing responsibility for the loss of the war on the shoulders of Ludendorff, they, the Jews and the communists, took away the weapon of moral right from the only adversary dangerous enough to be likely to succeed in bringing the betrayers of the fatherland to justice. And then he goes on, all this was inspired by the principle, which is quite true in within itself, that in the big lie there is always a certain force of credibility, because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted by the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily, and thus in the primitive simplicity of their minds they more readily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie, since they themselves often tell small lies in little matters, but we be, would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehoods." End quote. Based on this big lie and resulting highly effective propaganda designed by his henchman Joseph Goebbels, Hitler and the Nazis were then able to tap into long-standing anti-Semitism in Germany and Europe, fuel the rage and anger of the German people by scapegoating the Jews, blaming them for the loss of World War I, and thus they could justify the Holocaust, the so-called final solution to the Jewish question. Cold War historian Zachary Jonathan Jacobson in a 2018 piece in the Washington Post describes how Hitler, Goebbels, and the Nazis were able to pull this off when he states, quote, In short, Nazi fascism hinged on creating one streamlined overarching lie. The Nazis built an ideology on a fiction, the notion that Germany's defeat in World War I could be avenged and reversed by purging the German population of those purportedly responsible, the Jews, end quote. In other words, big lies have big consequences. Once they are swallowed and believed by the masses, they can be used by those in charge to justify any number of horrific actions, 
It's by no means an accident, by the way, that many historians of fascism have labeled Trump's alternative facts and conspiracy theories about the 2020 election being rigged and stolen as the big lie also. We're going to get into this a little bit more later on, but it's worth noting that the attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by the Trumpist MAGA army was directly fueled by Trump's big lie about the election being stolen from him. On the point of Trump's big lie, Andrew Higgins commented on the 10th of January in the New York Times that, quote, Mr. Trump has outraged his political opponents and left even some of his longtime supporters shaking their heads at his mendacity. In embracing this big lie, however, the president has taken a path that often works, at least in countries without robustly independent legal systems and news media, along with other reality checks, end quote. Since the election, we have seen that not only has Trump's big lie not faded away, instead, it's actually grown in power and scope, fueled by the likes of such politicians as, to name but a few, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Louis Gomer, Lauren Boebert, and Matt Gates, And of course, let's not forget the efforts of his former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. We've also seen it pushed by QAnon supporters such as attorneys Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell and former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. It's also led to attempts in multiple states by Republicans to impose new and more strict voter restrictions, as well as a bogus audit of allegedly fraudulent ballots in Arizona by the organization known as the Cyber Ninjas. Driven by Trump's big lie, additionally, there are a number of Republican conspiracy theorists who are running in various state election official races. According to Scott Levine of The Guardian, quote, Republicans who have embraced baseless claims about the 2020 election being stolen are now running to serve as the chief elections officials in several states, a move that could give them significant power over election processes. Winning Secretary of State offices across the country would give conspiracy theorists enormous power to wreak havoc in the 2024 presidential election, including potentially blocking candidates who win the most votes from taking office, end quote. But to return to the subject of Plato's noble lie, although it's almost always tied to political myths, there's quite often a religious component to it as well, as in, for example, Christian nationalism that's almost always connected to things like American exceptionalism and manifest destiny, which we'll talk about later on. In religious texts and belief systems, for example, it's referred to as pious fiction. Some thinkers have argued, for example, that the Old Testament is one of the best examples of pious fiction. In particular, books like Daniel were designed to make Jews in Babylonian and then later Persian exile feel encouraged and to give them a sense of hope for the future. Another example would be the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua. Let's be another example of pious fiction. It gave Jews, reading this account while they were in exile, a sense of Jewish triumphalism over its enemies. Other examples of pious fiction would include, for example, the Book of Mormon, and its clearly fictitious description of Jewish settlers building great civilizations in South America, or L. Ron Hubbard's science fiction account of Xenu, and the origins of Thetans in Scientology, or finally, the Quran, the sacred book of Islam. So let's talk about the American myth. So how does Plato's concept of the noble lie fit into American history exactly? Well, as mentioned, the noble lie is a myth that civilizations often create in order to explain not only their creation story as a nation or people group, it also helps them to justify certain actions as somehow divinely ordained or sanctioned. Ancient Rome, for example, developed the myth of its founders, the twin brothers Remus and Romulus. As newborns, so the story goes, they were abandoned to die along the banks of the Tiber River by the jealous King Aemilius, 
who viewed them as a potential threat to his rule. However, they were instead miraculously saved by the intervention of the river god Tiberinus and were raised by a she-wolf in a cave, which of course would later become the simple symbol of ancient Rome. The brothers went on to found the site of the city of Rome, but after Romulus killed his brother Remus, he went on to become Rome's first king, and even the fratricide that took place became a precursor, many Romans later believed, for the ultimate series of civil wars and infighting that would lead to Rome's eventual downfall as an empire. Thus, most societies and civilizations have such founding myths. In more modern examples, here's one, Hitler and the Nazis. They attempted to go back into ancient history to forge a link between modern Germans and the Germanic peoples as they were first encountered by the Romans millennia ago. According to an article on the Gale Review site on the subject, Nazi historians appropriated Roman history in order to formulate a modern national identity. Quote, the Germania, an apparently harmless description of the territories, customs, and tribes of the Germani by the first century Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus, was acclaimed by Nazi Germans as a banner, a portrait of the primitive Aryan, virtuous, fearless, and heavily militarized, qualities the Nazis felt had reverberated through the centuries and supported the racial identity of the modern German, end quote, thus used in service of the Nazi noble lie, the article goes on to point out, Tacitus's quote, work was instrumental for the construction of national identity in Nazi Germany. Witten defines its role as a rallying cry for German proto-nationalism, a centerpiece of the science of German studies and a talisman of the Third Reich. Together with other aspects of classical Rome, it was utilized by Nazi officials to legitimize their construction of German nationhood and to align themselves with the martial prowess of imperial Rome, end quote. Never mind that the ancient Germani people, as described by Tacitus, who most likely engaged in historiography himself, writing centuries later, it bore no resemblance to modern Germans in the early 20th century. The truth would not be allowed to stand in the way of a good, noble lie. According to Tacitus, for example, the indigenous Germani did not intermarry with other people groups around them, and therefore Hitler and the Nazis could build the case that modern Germans should also remain racially pure and fulfill their destiny by becoming that master race. So how does all this history relate to America and the noble lie? Well, in that Daily Kost article I cited earlier, the author establishes the link between the two when stating, quote, The narrative of the founding of America has been a noble lie, the illusion that our leaders had freedom's best interest at heart, end quote. The Declaration of Independence, for example, gives the lie to the noble lie. The Declaration in its beginning reads as follows, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. How ironic. Think about how pretentious those lofty words sound. The Founding Fathers claimed that God had created all men equal, but yet... Many of them owned slaves and felt that such practice was entirely justified from the Bible. Life, the idea that you felt safe and not threatened, and yet later generations of Americans would massacre entire people groups of Native Americans. Liberty, declaring this to be a self-evident truth, again, while enslaving others. And finally, the pursuit of happiness. But being a slave or having your tribe and your whole family and people group massacred and your ancestral land stolen certainly wouldn't qualify as any sort of pursuit of happiness. The point is that they weren't given the choice so freely espoused by the founding fathers as those unalienable rights. 
Therefore, when compared to the way Americans have treated other racial groups, both historically as well as currently, we find that there is a glaring and massive set of discrepancies. The founding myth of America as the shining city on a hill that would broadcast the Christian gospel to the rest of the world begins to get very tarnished and cannot sustain itself when looked at in terms of two major factors on which America itself was founded, as I've talked about, the enslavement of Africans, and second, the genocide and land stealing of the Native Americans. Returning to that Daily Cost article, the author points out that there are numerous, quote, horrific examples of when this country has not lived up to its own ideals, when our leaders have said one thing and done another. Our country was founded on the original sin of slavery. Economically, we would have never been able to sustain ourselves if it were not for the institution of slavery. Slavery was practiced all over the colonies during the colonial and revolutionary times and was only gradually abolished in the northern states. And from the very first, our country has been guilty of horrific human rights abuses, end quote, such as the genocide and exploitation of Native Americans and their land. And it's worth noting that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s looked to American eugenics, race laws, and their conquering of indigenous people as models for their own racial purity laws and practice of eugenics. For example, in 1928, Hitler said admiringly in a speech that Americans had, quote, gunned down the millions of redskins to a few hundred thousand and now keep the modest remnant under observation in a cage, end quote. Up until the 1940s, both Hitler and any number of Nazi leaders referred repeatedly to the American conquest of the West as a model for their own murderous eastward expansion, the concept of Lebensraum or living room. For the Germanic people, this is what Hitler looked to as a model for his own expansion. That Americans practiced genocide of indigenous peoples in the West was also viewed as justification for the Nazis' attempts to ex exterminate entire people groups as well. And of course, while America didn't serve as the sole model for all of the Nazi atrocities, the Nazis certainly found inspiration, precedent, and parallels from the earlier examples set by the United States. So let's look at Christian nationalism. Now, hang on a minute. Wasn't America founded to be a Christian nation? Isn't that true? Well, how in the world could it come to the point where Hitler and the Nazis drew inspiration and justification for their own murderous practices from America's examples? Surely that long-standing and widely popular belief isn't a noble lie, is it? Of course not. At least that's how John Winthrop saw his mission as he boarded the ship Arbella as it departed Southampton, England, with a boatload of Puritan colonists aboard. The year was 1630, and they were headed to America and would ultimately land at the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he would go on to become the first governor later that same year. But where does this notion come from of America as a Christian nation set up by means of a covenant with God? We can certainly trace it to people like Winthrop, who himself was deeply religious, the Puritans, in fact, came to see themselves as the new Israel, fleeing the persecution of Egypt, or Europe, for the promised land of America. It's interesting to note, by the way, how the Puritans came into being. Originally a sect of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, they became a purifying movement within the church, and that's how they got their name. In many ways, as biblical literalists, I think they're akin to the modern fundamentalist movement of the late 19th or early 20th centuries. And they had a couple problems with the Church of England. On the one hand, they felt that the leadership was being too loose with their interpretation and reading of the Bible. On the other hand, they felt that the church leadership was too dictatorial in their rules. 
According to the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers that came out of the Protestant Reformation, you didn't need a priest to get to God. Any believer could read and interpret the Bible for him or herself. This teaching, though, would lead to the massive splintering of the Protestant church into literally thousands of different denominations, each of which was convinced that they were right and all the others were wrong. In his book, Fantasyland, Kurt Anderson comments on this time period, arguing that the basic premise of Protestantism was actually quite radical. He says, quote, When official leaders lose their way, pious anybodies can and must decide the new improved truth on their own. That is, by reading scripture, each individual determines the correct meaning of the Christian fantasies. The Protestants' founding commitment to fierce, decentralized, do-it-yourself truth-finding and spiritual purity naturally led to the continuous generation of self-righteous sectarian spin-offs, end quote. The Puritans were but one such self-righteous sect that broke away, not just from the Church of England, but from England itself. They felt that the Anglican Church needed to be purged of its Catholicism and purified of Popish doctrine. A group of them, who became known as the Pilgrims, left unfriendly England and headed to the Protestant-friendly Netherlands in 1608, but ultimately found that atmosphere to be problematic too. Apparently, the Protestants in Holland were too liberal. These Puritan extremists believed that they were bound for hell simply because their fellow believers disagreed with their rigid belief system. Viewing themselves as exiles in search of a promised land, just like ancient Israel, in 1620, a group of about 120 pilgrims left there and made their way on the famous Mayflower across the ocean to Cape Cod. There, they sought to build that religious utopia they so eagerly desired, that Zion in the wilderness. We talked about John Winthrop. Now, he was one of the early Puritan leaders who led the flight from England directly to America. A decade after that group of pilgrims left uh, the Netherlands, he took a group directly from England, as I mentioned, sailing from Southampton in 1630 toward the Massachusetts Bay Colony. According to his biography on Britannica's site, quote, As Winthrop sailed west on the Arbella in the spring of 1630, he composed a lay sermon, a model of Christian charity, in which he pictured the Massachusetts colonists in covenant with God and with each other, divinely ordained to build a city on a hill in New England with the eyes of all people on them. Now, quoting from Winthrop's sermon, if we deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all believers in God. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we are forced out of the new land where we are going." End quote. But why is Winthrop's concept of America as a city on a hill from which the light of the gospel shines to the rest of the world important on any level? Abraham Van Engen, in an article about how America became that shining city, details how later politicians would seize upon that image of Winthrop's and use it to spread the noble lie of American exceptionalism and Christian nationalism. Van Engen states, quote, that 1630 sermon by John Winthrop is now famous mainly for its proclamation that we shall be as a city upon a hill. Beginning in the 1970s, Ronald Reagan placed that line from that sermon at the center of his political career. Tracing the story of America from John Winthrop forward, Reagan built a powerful articulation of American exceptionalism. The idea, as he explained, now talking about Reagan here, that there was some divine plan that placed this great continent between two oceans to be sought out by those who were possessed of an abiding love of freedom and a special kind of courage. 
And he goes on, In 2012, American exceptionalism, as summarized by the phrase, city on a hill, became an official plank in the platform of the Republican Party, end quote. And it wasn't just Reagan who picked up this trope and used it too. Multiple other presidents have utilized it for political purposes. The list is long. JFK, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama all used it in various political speeches. The myth that America was founded as a Christian nation is also widespread in American evangelicalism, too. For example, the so-called historian, evangelical David Barton of Wall Builders out of Alito, Texas, has literally forged an entire career promoting the myth of Christian nationalism. According to their site, quote, Wall Builders is an organization dedicated to presenting America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on the moral, religious, and constitutional foundation on which America was built, end quote. Notice that implicit in this statement is a whiff of conspiratorial thinking. In other words, they, you know, the professional secular historians apparently, don't want you to know the truth about America's forgotten history that America really was founded as a Christian nation. Fortunately, Wall Builders is there to shine a light on this allegedly forgotten history. Never mind the fact that America expressly was not founded as a Christian nation on the basis of a divine covenant with God, just like ancient Israel in the book of Exodus. And there's an additional important element to the Christian nationalist noble lie, the belief that America must repent and return to its status as a Christian nation once again. Second Chronicles 7.14 is a key verse that Christian nationalists cite to prove their case. According to the text, God tells Israel that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is seen as a blueprint for America, too. It's been around a very long time. In fact, I can remember as a kid going to the Seattle Center in the mid-1970s to hear Christian singing artists Jimmy and Carol Owens and their gospel choir perform an entire concert centered around this verse. And the whole thing was called, If My People. My parents even bought the album. We listened to it regularly for years because, of course, rock music was forbidden. We could listen to Jimmy and Carol Owens, though. That added piece of the puzzle is critical because it's a long-standing feature of Christian nationalists that America has lost its way morally. It's forsaken its place as a Christian nation. You can hear it now, can't you? As a result, God is no longer blessing us as a country because we tolerate horrific corporate sins like abortion and same-sex marriage. Small wonder, then, that the Christian right has been seeking to overturn Roe versus Wade for decades. They're working hard at it now. They want to roll back the hard-won rights of the LGBTQ community. If they can eliminate those terrible corporate sins, they reason, then America will become a Christian nation again, and God will start blessing us. And you know, David Barton isn't content just to educate Christians about America's so-called forgotten history. He goes on to involve a political element along with his revisionist history. As I'm saying, it's not enough simply to believe that America was once a Christian nation in the past. We've got to craft a winning strategy to help it become one again. His site lays out the goal clearly for wall builders when it says, quote, Wall Builder's goal is to exert a direct and positive influence in government, education, and the family by 1. Educating the nation concerning the godly foundation of our country. 2. Providing information to federal, state, and local officials as they develop public policies which reflect biblical values. And 3. Encouraging Christians to be involved in the civic arena. 
It also talks about educating the nation. The site goes on to say, in the first part of this goal, we, that is wall builders, develop materials to educate the people concerning the periods in our country's history when its laws and policies were firmly rooted in biblical principles, end quote. Thus, we now begin to see the dominionist element to Barton's agenda. It's not enough that he's made a literal career out of peddling outright lies and half-truths about America's ostensibly Christian foundation. He's developed what he believes is a winning strategy to return America to its godly roots. As a few examples of Barton's activities, just look at what he's done. I mean, for years, he's been pushing legislators on both state and federal levels to pass laws that reflect a so-called biblical worldview. He's also been influential in the state of Texas school board. He's forced them to revise textbooks that will reflect instead his Christian nationalist ideas. He's constantly touring the country, at least he was before COVID, speaking all over the place. He regularly appears on Christian TV shows like Kenneth Copeland's Believer's Voice of Victory to push his agenda. And finally, he wants to encourage Christians to get involved in the political arena too. In other words, Barton envisions an America that somehow returns to that golden era in American history, you know, when its laws and policies were firmly rooted in biblical principles. And he's doing his level best to bring about that vision of some sort of a theocracy. The problem is, of course, that there was no such mythical golden age when somehow America functioned as a theocracy with a monolithic Christian religious viewpoint. Yes, it's true, a great many of the founding fathers were indeed some sort of Christians, but a lot of them were deists and agnostics too, as children of the Enlightenment. However, they certainly did not found America to be an expressly Christian nation with laws based on the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments, despite whatever myriad of quotes Barton can string together from thinkers of the past who played a part in America's origins. The issue at hand is that guys like Winthrop and a great many of his fellow Puritans thought that that's what they were doing back in the 1620s and 30s, but that they believed that that's what they were doing certainly doesn't prove conclusively that all of America was founded to be a Christian nation. The truth is that the early American colonies were surprisingly religiously diverse. After all, wasn't that a, the point of going there in the first place? If not to find religious freedom to worship as you saw fit without the state or a state church interfere, interfering in your religion? However, the very opposite is true. We can see that religious intolerance had already taken root in the Massachusetts Bay Colony by the 1640s. Our John Winthrop, the man who preached about America being on that city on a hill in 1630, was voted in as governor 12 times. But he became increasingly incensed over and over again as dissidents challenged his vision of a, a godly community and questioned his notions of church-state relations. But worse was to come. According to his biography on Britannica, quote, the greatest outrage to Winthrop by far, however, came when Anne Hutchinson, a mere woman, gained control of his Boston church in 1636 and endeavored to convert the whole colony to a religious position that Winthrop considered blasphemous. It was he who led the counterattack against her. His victory was complete. Hutchinson was tried before the general court chiefly for traducing the ministers, and was sentenced to banishment, end quote. She was tried before that very Boston church and then formally excommunicated for her alleged heresy. Forced to leave Boston, she and her husband founded at first a community on Rhode Island that eventually settled on Long Island Sound. The problem we have now is, of course, that a guy like Barton can find just enough 
evidence of what people like Winthrop and the Puritans believed to craft a compelling narrative that somehow proves that not only was America founded to be a Christian nation, it should become one again. This explains his emphasis on biblical legislation and Christian involvement in politics. This is, as I say, the dominionist piece. Another aspect as well is you can see that they've picked up on Winthrop's idea of this covenant, that if America is doing the right thing, God will bless the nation, and if America sins, he'll curse it. And so guys like Barton and other Christian nationalists, they're trying to refashion America back to that supposed Christian nation that it allegedly once was. That's why it's so important. Let's take a short break as we're looking at this issue of the noble lie and how it feeds into the American mythology or the American story, the official version of American history. And I hope it will explain a lot about not only the past, but also what's happening today in the deeply divided, polarized world of America. And toward the end, we're going to get into a really interesting thing called the theological war thesis. Now, you might be wondering what in the world does that have to do with American mythology and the noble lie? But I think think it'll all make sense when it comes around. Let's take a minute, though, and think about what's coming up in the next few episodes here on MindShift Podcast. I've got some fantastic interviews that I've already done. First of all, we're going to have coming out the next episode is a chat with Dr. Audrey Claire Farley. We talked about Dr. James Dobson, who is, of course, the founder of Focus on the Family, the Family Research Council, huge figure on the Christian right for decades, going back to the 1970s. And what she's done is uncover a really disturbing connection between James Dobson and eugenics going back to the 1910s and 1920s in America. And this does relate as well to what I've been talking about in this episode in that the Nazis, Hitler, the Germans, they look to American eugenics policies to justify what they did to the Jews, to the quote, you know, feeble minds, uh, homosexuals, they were sterilizing people, anyone that they deemed to be quote unquote inferior. And so Hitler was actually looking to America for his policies, believe it or not, kind of what we were talking about, about the westward expansion and all the rest of it. So this is a fascinating chat with Audrey Claire Farley. And then I talked to Daniel Phelps. He's a survivor of the World Revival Church out of Kansas City. We had a really interesting discussion, kind of shining a light on that. I've also got a, a couple of episodes queued up as I'm doing this recording now. I've got some calls booked in. I'm going to be talking to tonight, actually, as it turns out, as I'm doing this recording, again, going back to talk to Frederick Clarkson of the Political Research Associates. We're talking about an article that he wrote about white supremacy, about what's going on up in Washington State, the Pacific Northwest, my home sort of area. That's where I was born in, in Seattle, Washington. And so we're going to be talking about that. Then the next day, I'm talking to Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast. We are going to actually do a two-part episode. We're going to do one long recording. Half of the show is going to go on hers, and then the other half is going to go on mine. So I'm really excited to talk to Rachel. We've been in touch for about a month now, talking about what we're going to cover. And then finally, I've got two guys. One guy's coming back as a returning guest, Seven, if you remember him. He's a rapper out of Jacksonville, Florida. And then David Johnson of the Seekers and Skeptics Podcast. We are going to be talking about how race is deeply embedded in white evangelicalism in America. And again, this all goes back to what I'm talking about in this episode. So somehow, although it wasn't intended at all, all this stuff does come around full circle. There's a deeply embedded racism, white supremacy, 
not just in American culture, but into white evangelicalism. So I'm going to be doing my best to uncover a lot of that with some of these various conversations that's coming up. I'll just say too, really quickly that we've got some fantastic Mindship podcast Zoom calls. These are available only for people who are Patreon supporters of this show. We've got Emily Elizabeth Anderson coming in on the 27th of this month. She, of course, was on recently. We talked about Bill Gothard, Josh Duggar, the ATI, Advanced Training Institute, this homeschooling cult that Bill Gothard founded. Basically, the whole movement is a cult. So she's going to be our guest on the next MindShift Zoom call. We've also got our patrons-only call, which takes place this Sunday, the 13th of June. We do those every month. And again, those are benefits that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. If you want to support the show and be a part of those calls, then head on over to my Patreon page and you can support the show. Also, I'll just mention really quickly that Chris Shelton and I did a fantastic live Facebook event just the other day on the 6th of June. That event is actually available now as a recording. You can go over to the Mindship Podcast Facebook page and watch that video. We talked about mental health and religion for about a good hour. We had a fantastic discussion unpacking the psychology, him talking about his experiences as an ex-Scientologist, me as an ex-Evangelical. So if you want to check out the chat that Chris Shelton and I did, head over to the Mindship Podcast Facebook page. I'm actually planning on doing some more of these episodes. I've been in chats right now with Dan Barker of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, as well as David Hayward, the Naked Pastor, and Tim Sledge, Goodbye Jesus. We were on a panel recently for the Conference on Religious Trauma Court 2021, and off the back of that, we said we need to do another event talking about ex-ministers and our experiences as ex-evangelicals, but really ex-pastors. All of us were pastors of various churches, so we're going to do a Facebook Live event about that experience. And then I'm also in chats with Frank Schaefer. We're going to be doing another Facebook Live event at some point here. We're just working on setting up the date and the time. So we've got some really cool stuff coming up on Facebook Live as well. All right, let's get back into it. We're going to be looking at these issues of manifest destiny, American exceptionalism. And then we're going to finish by looking at this thing called the theological war thesis. And somehow it's all going to make sense. I keep saying that, but I promise it's true. So let's head back on into the conversation and pick up where we left off. Let's take a look now at American exceptionalism. Closely tied to Christian nationalism are a series of other noble lies that have helped not only to explain America's origin story, they've also helped to justify its actions over the centuries. Two of these associated noble lies are American exceptionalism and manifest destiny. Let's take a look at American exceptionalism first. The question that we need to ask is this. Was America truly founded as a Christian nation, unique, exceptional, and blessed of God in virtually everything it's done since then? Or was it perhaps something entirely different? In his excellent four-part documentary series called Exterminate All the Brutes, which I've mentioned before, filmmaker Raoul Peck includes a quote from then-President Obama. Speaking of America, Obama said, quote, We sometimes make mistakes. We've not been perfect. But if you look at uh, the track record, as you say, America was not born as a colonial power, end quote. As you may imagine, Peck does have a difficulty with that. He then goes on to comment, quote, Well, actually, it was. America was born as a colonial power, and this fact is a difficult one to admit, for it bears the fatal capacity to disrupt the core stories we have been told all these years and the very foundation of this country. It's not an easy story to tell, because the story still continues today, a story of the thirst for purity and for a godly kingdom, a story of survival and violence, 
a search for origins 400 years after the voyage that is said to have made the nation, end quote. Professor Stephen M. Walt of Harvard University comments on the meaning and implications of the long-standing belief in American exceptionalism when he explains, quote, Over the last two centuries, prominent Americans have described the United States as an empire of liberty, a shining city on a hill, the last best hope of earth, the leader of the free world, and the indispensable nation. These enduring tropes, he says, explain why all presidential candidates feel compelled to offer ritualistic paeons to America's greatness. Most statements of American exceptionalism presume that America's values, political system, and history are unique and worthy of universal admiration. They also imply that the United States is both destined and entitled to play a distinct and positive role on the world stage. And he then concludes by saying, The only thing wrong with this self-congratulatory portrait of America's global rule is that it is mostly a myth. Although the United States possesses certain unique qualities from high levels of religiosity to a political culture that privileges individual freedom, the conduct of U.S. foreign policy has been determined primarily by its relative power and by the inherently competitive nature of international politics. By focusing on their supposedly exceptional qualities, Americans blind themselves to the ways that they are a lot like everyone else, end quote. Walt puts his finger right on the issue, the fact that, based on this enduring myth of American exceptionalism, many Americans are shocked when the nation doesn't act in accordance with its supposedly lofty ideals. America's supposed to set an example, to be different than all the other nations in the world, right? No. He goes on to point out that, quote, declarations of American exceptionalism rest on the belief that the United States is a uniquely virtuous nation, one that loves peace, nurtures liberty, respects human rights, and embraces the rule of law. Americans like to think their country behaves much better than other states do, and certainly better than other great powers. If only it were true. The United States may not have been as brutal as the worst states in world history, but a dispassionate look at the historical record belies most claims about America's moral superiority, end quote. Now, of course, we can't list them all here, but let's take a brief look at some of the historical records. What's America done that belies its claims of moral superiority, to name but a few? The enslavement of millions of Africans, genocide of Native Americans, land grabbing from Native Americans, imperialistic wars of colonization like the Spanish-American War, the subsequent conquering of the Philippines off the back of that war, and the shocking human rights violations that were committed there. And by the way, let me just say here, if you have not heard the Dan Carlin Hardcore History episode on the Spanish-American War, you definitely need to do that because he picks up a lot of these same themes that we're talking about in this episode. All right, moving on. Colonizing Puerto Rico and Hawaii. Then in World War II, there was the deliberate targeting of German and Japanese cities with aerial firebombing campaigns. These are civilian, non-military targets like Dresden and Tokyo. Basically, they'd be considered war crimes. Dropping not one, but two nuclear bombs on civilian targets, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that ended the Japanese involvement in World War II. Moving on, dropping of napalm and Agent Orange defoliant in Vietnam, the Iran-Contra scandal and the CIA meddling in numerous South American governments, Project MKUltra, the CIA used this against their own citizens, an illegal war in Iraq under George W. Bush that killed tens of thousands of Muslims, and then now killing of countless Afghani and Iraqi civilians in the latest iteration of that same war. It's just a short list, really. 
Therefore, Americans should wonder, is there any reason why so much of the rest of the world hates or distrusts America at best, especially Muslims? The point here is that with all of its lofty sounding rhetoric, America is supposed to be different, better, superior. That's the alleged point of American exceptionalism, isn't it? But as Walt notes at the end of his article, quote, the United States never conquered a vast overseas empire or caused millions to die through tyrannical blunders like China's Great Leap Forward or Stalin's forced collectivization. And given the vast power at its disposal for much of the past century, Washington could certainly have done much worse. But the record is clear. U.S. leaders have done what they thought they had to do when confronted by external dangers, and they paid scant attention to moral principles along the way. The idea that the United States is uniquely virtuous may be comforting to Americans. Too bad it's not true. End quote. Manifest destiny. Let's take a look at that. Closely tied to such noble lies as Christian nationalism and American exceptionalism, as I mentioned, is another concept which is referred to as manifest destiny. What is it? There's some dispute about the actual origins of the phrase. According to a History.com article, the phrase, quote, first appeared in an editorial published in the July-August 1845 issue of the Democratic Review. In it, the writer criticized the opposition that still lingered against the annexation of Texas, urging national unity on behalf of the fulfillment of our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by Providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions, end quote. Others tie it to the editor John L. O'Sullivan. In an article on the University of Groningen site about Manifest Destiny, author Michael Lubrage discusses its origins. Quote, In 1845, a Democratic leader and influential editor by the name of John L. O'Sullivan gave the movement its name. That's Manifest Destiny. In an attempt to explain America's thirst for expansion and to present a defense for America's claim to new territories, he wrote, now quoting O'Sullivan, The right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent which Providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federative development of self-government entrusted to us. It is right, such as that of the tree, to the space of air and the earth suitable for the full expansion of its principle and destiny of growth. And he goes on, Manifest Destiny became the rallying cry throughout America. The notion of Manifest Destiny was publicized in the papers and was advertised and argued by politicians throughout the nation. The idea of Manifest Destiny doctrine became the torch that lit the way for American expansion, end quote. Going back to that History.com article on the subject, quote, Manifest Destiny, a phrase coined in 1845, is the idea that the United States is destined, by God, its advocates believed, to expand its dominion and spread democracy and capitalism across the entire North American continent. The philosophy drove 19th century U.S. territorial expansion and was used to justify the forced removal of Native Americans and other groups from their homes. The rapid expansion of the United States intensified the issue of slavery as new states were added to the Union, leading to the outbreak of the Civil War, end quote. Of course, the fact that Americans owned slaves was nothing new. The bulk of American economy from its very origins as a British colony was built off the backs of African slave labor, primarily in the southern states. And here we can see that ideas like American exceptionalism clearly influenced the later 19th century doctrine of manifest destiny. For example, what's interesting to note about our John Winthrop, we've talked about him before, is that his hands were far from clean when it came to the issue of slavery, too. It also shows that beliefs in the supremacy of the white race were also baked into the American story virtually from the beginning. And as I mentioned earlier, 
The Puritans saw themselves as the new Israel coming to the promised land, but they also read the biblical story of Joshua's conquest of Canaan and the fact that according to the text, God himself commanded that Israel commit genocide of the indigenous peoples that lived there. Let's not forget that this notion, based on the biblical historical record, was also baked into the very DNA of the original colonists who set up shop in America, and it influenced how they, as well as later pioneers who moved westward, came to view the Native Americans too. The Britannica article on Winthrop goes on to point out that, quote, By 1640, Winthrop had become the custodian of Massachusetts orthodoxy, suspicious of new ideas and influences, and convinced that God favored his community above all others. In 1641, Winthrop helped write the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, the first legal sanctioning of slavery in North America. Indeed, Winthrop owned at least one Native American slave, taken during the Pequot War of 1636 to 1637. As slavery grew in New England, it was more typical for Native American slaves to be sent to the West Indies where they were exchanged for enslaved Africans, end quote. And as we've seen, although the specific phrase manifest destiny didn't come into being until 1845, according to an article on the Khan Academy site, quote, Though the term was new, the ideas underlying it were much older, dating back to the first colonial contact between Europeans and Native Americans. The ideology that became known as Manifest Destiny included a belief in the inherent superiority of white Americans, as well as the conviction that they were destined by God to conquer the territories of North America from sea to shining sea. And it goes on. The ideology of Manifest Destiny justified extreme measures to clear the native population from the land, including forced removal and violent extermination. For proponents of Manifest Destiny, the American Indians were mere impediments to the forward march of racial and technological progress, and they advocated pursuing a policy of Indian removal." End quote. The fact is that the notion of Manifest Destiny predates the founding of America, and it can be tied to the much larger efforts of European colonization and the bedrock belief in the God-ordained supremacy of the white race over people of color. Lubrage points out, for example, that, quote, the idea of manifest destiny is as old as America itself. The philosophy sailed with Christopher Columbus across the Atlantic. It resided in the spirits of the Jamestown colonists, and it landed at Plymouth Rock with the pilgrims. It also traveled with the fire and brimstone preachers during the Great Awakening and built the first national road, end quote. What really kicked off America's westward expansion as a colonial power was the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, in which Thomas Jefferson bought 828,000 square miles of land from the French Emperor Napoleon. America didn't need to expand to other parts of the world like the European superpowers. All they had to do was keep moving westward. And here's an interesting side note. The ludicrous notion that France even owned that territory in the first place demonstrates how the European colonial superpowers of the day believed that just claiming the land for their country somehow actually made it so. I don't want to get too much into it here, but the entire notion of colonialism was backed up by the Catholic Church and what is called the Doctrine of Discovery. This can be traced as far back as the 1100s when a series of papal bulls were issued claiming territorial sovereignty for Christian monarchs sanctioned by the Catholic Church. This goes all the way back to the Crusades, really. But it wasn't until the 15th century that things really got rolling. According to an article on the Upstander Project, quote, Two papal bulls in particular stand out. Number one, Pope Nicholas V issued Romanus Pontifex in 1455, granting the Portuguese a monopoly of trade with Africa and authorizing the enslavement of local people. 
Number two, Pope Alexander VI issued the papal bull Intercatera in 1493 to justify Christian European explorers' claims on land and waterways they allegedly discovered and promote Christian domination and superiority and has been applied in Africa, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and the Americas, end quote. Therefore, the doctrine of discovery is where this notion comes from that any explorer during the age of colonialism starting in about the 15th, 16th century could simply discover and claim any new territory that he first set foot on. Never mind that it wasn't discovered, it already existed and it was populated with indigenous peoples, but such is the Western version of history. The article goes on to lay out how this worked and how it led to the notion that white people were just simply superior and this was the divine order. Quote, if an explorer proclaims to have discovered the land in the name of a Christian European monarch, plants a flag in its soil, and reports his discovery to the European rulers and returns to occupy it, the land is now his, even if someone else was there first. Should the original occupants insist on claiming that the land is theirs, the discoverer can label the occupant's way of being on the land inadequate according to European standards. This ideology supported the dehumanization of those living on the land and their dispossession, murder, and forced assimilation. The doctrine fueled white supremacy insofar as white European settlers claimed they were instruments of divine design and possessed cultural superiority." End quote. Returning to the Louisiana Purchase, which somehow was owned by France and therefore legally able to be sold to the United States, Napoleon was forced to sell it cheap to Jefferson because France was desperately short of cash. Why? Because in 1802, Napoleon had sent 65,000 soldiers to Haiti in a vain attempt to put down a slave revolt that had been raging there for several years already. The French lost. The slaves set up their own independent state, and Napoleon, as I say, desperate for cash, sold the territory to the United States. Interestingly, that successful slave revolt that began in Haiti would do far more to bring an end to slavery than the efforts of white Christian abolitionists, which, of course, goes against the official narrative, another noble lie, of how it was actually the values of Christianity that ultimately put an end to the slave trade. Going back to the Louisiana Purchase, it stretched from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains in the West. This highly dubious purchase of, of course, what was originally Native American territory officially cleared the way for American settlers to move out in force and begin claiming the land. Jefferson also set his sights on Spanish-owned Florida, and the purchase was finally legalized under President James Monroe in 1819. Returning to that History.com article, quote, In 1823, Monroe invoked Manifest Destiny when he spoke before Congress to warn European nations not to interfere with America's westward expansion, threatening that any attempt by Europeans to colonize the American continents would be seen as an act of war. This policy of an American sphere of influence and of non-intervention in European affairs became known as the Monroe Doctrine. After 1870, it would be used as a rationale for the U.S. intervention in Latin America, end quote. By the mid-1840s, the state of Texas would be added in to the rapidly expanding efforts at American colonization and westward expansion. President James Polk, who served from 1845 to 1849, is the leader most associated with the doctrine of manifest destiny. Under his leadership, he led America to victory over Mexico in the Mexican-American War, and following that victory, seized most of the modern-day Southwest. He also negotiated the Oregon Treaty with Britain, adding it into what is now the Pacific 
Northwest. And of course, this leads right into American imperialism. The major problem with such noble lies as Manifest Destiny, of course, is that not only are they untrue, they also help to explain and justify not only American westward expansion, but the subsequent genocide of Native Americans. Plus, it took on other aliases too, such as American imperialism. That doctrine would allow America to extend its reach globally. Lubrage comments on this development that, quote, If God and mission were the road to manifest destiny, imperialism was the light that lit the way. Between the late 1800s and early 1900s, the American businessman fueled the notion of international destiny. This group strongly believed in America extending its authority over other lands. This authority can be done by either political, military, or economical means. But no matter what the method, imperialism was the reason to extend America's interests beyond the Pacific. As a result of imperialism, the U.S. took control of the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico via the Spanish-American War, end quote. Another development or alias of Manifest Destiny is what has become known as yellow journalism, or the first recorded instance of fake news, first seen in the sensationalistic reporting by the newly formed Associated Press during the Mexican-American War, it truly came into its own during the Spanish-American War. At the time, rival editors William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer were at war with each other over who could garner the most readership to their respective newspapers. Both sent journalists to Cuba to cover the fighting between the Cubans and their Spanish colonial overlords. The more sensational and outlandish the reporting about alleged Spanish atrocities committed there, the better. Never mind that most of it was either completely made up or had very little actual research behind it. By the time President McKinley went to Congress in 1898 to ask for permission to America to enter the fray, he already had the majority of American support behind him. As an article on the Public Domain Review points out about this yellow journalism, quote, The phenomenon can be seen to reach its most rampant heights and most exemplary period in the lead-up to the Spanish-American War, a conflict that some dubbed the Journal's War due to Hearst's immense influence in stoking the fires of anti-Spanish sentiment in the U.S. Much of the coverage by both the New York World and the New York Journal was tainted by unsubstantiated claims, sensationalist propaganda, and outright factual errors. When the USS Maine exploded and sank in Havana Harbor on the evening of 15 February 1898, huge headlines in the journal blamed Spain with no evidence at all. The phrase, remember the Maine, to hell with Spain, became a populist rousing call to action. The Spanish-American War began later that year, end quote. So the media plays a role in this whole issue of the noble lie as well. Let's take a look at this issue of what's called the theological war thesis. This is an interesting sideline that I'm going to be able to tie back in to this whole argument. The major problem that evangelicals like David Barton and wall builders have in explaining how America could be considered a Christian nation, blessed by God, and yet commit so many atrocities since its founding. This is a huge problem. The whole point is that if these noble lies were indeed true and not myths, then America should truly be different from all the other nations. But as we've seen, the exact opposite is true. All too often, America has failed to live up to its alleged founding ideals about justice, democracy for all, liberty, freedom from oppression, and the equality of all men. Take, just as one example, the issue of slavery. We know, for example, that there were a great many Christians, not just in the South, who were deeply complicit in the slave trade from the very beginning of the American colonies. For example, the entire Southern Baptist Convention was founded in part on this basis. 
Tom Jelton of NPR comments that, quote, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, came into being in 1845 as the Church of Southern Slaveholders, end quote. In 2018, 173 years after the fact, the Southern Baptist Seminary, the denomination's flagship institution, finally started facing up to the reality that, as President Dr. Al Mohler said in a letter, quote, the founding fathers of this school, all four of them, were deeply involved in slavery and deeply complicit in the defense of slavery. He goes on to say, many of their successors on this faculty throughout the period of Reconstruction and well into the 20th century advocated the inferiority of African Americans and openly embraced the ideology of the lost cause of Southern slavery, end quote. So we can see that the issue is deeply embedded in American Christianity, too. But hang on a minute. If America was founded to be a Christian nation, as David Barton and so many other evangelicals truly believe, how could God bless this nation whose very economy from the beginning was built on the evils of the slave trade? Surely those two issues must be incompatible with each other. Well, Christians have long grappled with this issue. For example, here's one response in an article by Stephen McDowell on the subject of slavery and the founding fathers on Barton's Wall Builders site. The article begins by attempting to address this difficult issue. McDowell says, quote, America's founding fathers are seen by some people today as unjust and hypocrites, for while they talked of liberty and equality, they at the same time were enslaving hundreds of thousands of Africans. Some allege that the founders bear most of the blame for the evils of slavery. Consequently, many today have little respect for the founders and turn their ear from listening to anything they may have to say. And in their view, to speak of America as founded as a Christian nation is unthinkable, for how could a Christian nation tolerate slavery? End quote. But of course, let's not forget, McDowell is laboring under the noble lie or delusion of Christian nationalism. The article goes on to promote this myth. It says, quote, America's founders were predominantly Christians and had a biblical worldview. If that was so, some say, how could they allow slavery? For isn't slavery sin? As the Bible reveals to man what is sin, we need to examine what it has to say about slavery. End quote. To build his case, he goes on to cite R.J. Rush Dooney, who is, of course, the father of Christian Reconstructionism and Dominion theology, the article goes on to make the case that, yes, slavery is condoned in both the Old and the New Testament under a variety of conditions, and somehow, he says, it's always tied to sin, which makes you wonder, were the Africans in sin that they were enslaved? It's hard to say. Furthermore, he argues, many of the founding fathers were actually anti-slavery, and it was they who laid the foundations for the ultimate abolition of slavery. So no, he concludes, quote, that America was founded upon such biblical principles is what made her a Christian nation. Not that there was no sin in the founders. It is because of the Christian foundations that America has become the most free, just, and prosperous nation in history. The godly principles infused in her laws, institutions, and families have had immense impact in overthrowing tyranny, oppression, and slavery throughout the world, end quote. Again, though, note the glaring discrepancy between what McDowell believes America to be versus the actual actions we've been describing all along that give the lie to such a statement. But in building his case on the argument of Rush Dooney, what McDowell fails to point out is that, first of all, Rush Dooney was a racist and a Holocaust denier, and second, he promoted a doctrine that has become known as the Theological War Thesis. What is the Theological War Thesis, and how has that argument spread throughout the work of Reconstructionists like Rush Dooney and others like Doug Wilson into such avenues as the Christian homeschooling movement? 
The theological war thesis is but one more iteration of a noble lie, and it can be described as a Christian nationalist position. It's defined in a great article by Canadian authors Sebesta and Haig as follows. It, quote, is an assessment that interprets the 19th century CSA, the Confederate States of America, to be an orthodox Christian nation and understands that the 1861 to 1865 U.S. Civil War to have been a theological war of the future of American religiosity fought between devout Confederate and heretical Union states, end quote. The argument proceeds to state that the Confederate flag and other icons of the Confederacy are actually symbols of Christianity. Opposition to them equals a rejection of Christianity itself. So the Theological Wars thesis, it traces its origins to the mid-19th century with the Southern Presbyterian Church. It actually predates the Civil War. There were three primary advocates of the Theological War thesis in the 19th century. Number one, R.L. Dabney. He was a professor at Union Theological Seminary in Virginia and later became General Stonewall Jackson's chaplain during the Civil War. Number two, James Henry Thornwell. He was president of South Carolina College, later professor at Columbia Theological Seminary. And finally, number three, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, who became the founding editor of the Southern Presbyterian Review. He was also a professor at Columbia Theological Seminary and the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans. So basically, the theologians who founded and promoted the theological war thesis not only argued that the Confederacy comprised an orthodox Christian nation, they also, number one, defended slavery on biblical grounds, number two, denounced public education and mass schooling, and number three, proposed to maintain a patriarchal and an unequal society. Many Southern preachers, both pre- and post-Civil War, cast the whole South as an Orthodox Christian nation under assault from abolitionists. Thus, fueled by this conspiracy theory thinking, the entire conflict was framed as a theological issue. Many Southern clergymen also supported secession. The Civil War was portrayed by Dabney and others as an attack on the godly South by the heretical and atheistic forces of the North. Southern clergyman Benjamin Morgan Palmer stated in a sermon in 1860, shortly before Louisiana seceded, that slavery, quote, has fashioned our modes of life and determined all our habits of thought and feeling and molded the very type of our civilization. It was their religious duty, he said, to, quote, defend the cause of God and religion, and in particular, to conserve and to perpetuate the institution of domestic slavery, end quote. That sermon would go on to become a central text and tenet of the theological war thesis. After the war, the Southern Presbyterian Church published biographies and writings of all three men. Now, the argument remained outside of the mainstream until the 20th century, until, that is, the work of three men who brought it back into focus. Number one, Richard M. Weaver, who was a Southern agrarian in the early 1900s. Number two, R.J. Rushdoony, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. He started the Chalcedon Foundation in 1965. He, quote, initiated the Christian Reconstructionist movement in the United States that advocates the establishment of biblical republics under God's law or theonomy, end quote. Number three is C. Greg Singer. He was the leader of the Concerned Presbyterian. He also played a key role in establishing the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, in the 1970s, and Eugene Genovese, a historian who reappraised the above works in the 1980s and 90s. And there was one more important influence too, that is Sprinkle Publications out of Harrisburg, Virginia. What they did is they reprinted texts from Southern Presbyterian clergymen that were pre-
pre-Civil War era, beginning in the 1970s. For example, Sprinkle Publications sold 30,000 copies of Dabney's work on Stonewall Jackson as of 1994. They continue to receive orders for this work, as well as others of Southern clergymen and theologians who advocated the theological war thesis. So on their legacy and how this particular noble lie gained increasing influence, the authors note, quote, by the mid-1960s, therefore, Weaver, Singer, and Rush Dooney had to varying degrees reasserted that the Confederate states fought to preserve Orthodox Christianity in the face of Union abolitionism and that the Civil War was a theological war over the future direction of the United States. Publishing at the height of the struggle for civil rights in the, in the United States, these authors argued that civil rights were anti-Christian, that inequality is God's intended order, and they drew on Thornwell, Dabney, and their contemporaries to provide a historical and religious justification for this position. The role of these men, they say, in wider conservative and Christian Reconstructionist groups resulted in their proposals finding a broad audience amongst the religious right in the United States, end quote. Thus, as he was developing his theological system of Christian Reconstructionism in the midst of the turmoil of the 1960s counterculture movement, Rushduni discovered the work of R.L. Dabney, who himself was a virulent racist. Rushduni appreciated Dabney's view of African Americans as an inferior race, and it helped support his own dislike of desegregation as well as the civil rights movement. In a 2004 article on the Southern Poverty Law Center site, former guest on Mindship Podcast Mark Potok comments that it was Rushduni's 1973 work, The Institutes of Biblical Law, that, quote, fleshed out Rushduni's vision of a society reconstructed along Old Testament lines. A world in which religious governors would mete out biblical punishment like the stoning to death of gays, adulteresses, incorrigible children, and many others. Relying on a literal reading of the Bible, Rushduni espoused a society of classes with differing rights, opposed interracial marriage, and scoffed at egalitarianism, end quote. But it wasn't enough for Rushduni to formulate such a vile theological and biblical position, and this is where we start to see how Rushduni implemented his dominionist agenda. Potok goes on to point out that, quote, Rushduni also developed a strategic plan. The most effective way of implementing his vision, he said, would be to develop Christian homeschooling and private schools in order to train up a generation to take the reins of society. So vigorous was his pursuit of this strategy that Rushduni would eventually come to be known in, to many as the father of the Christian homeschooling movement, end quote. So why should any of this matter? Well, let's trace the influence of Rushduni just a little bit further. For example, author and neo-Confederate clergyman Stephen Wilkins, who's the director of the League of the South, is one of the most prominent figures in this movement today. He's a member of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, and he's also a resident instructor at the R.L. Dabney Center for Theological Studies out of Monroe, Louisiana. He writes articles for almost all journals advancing neo-Confederate and Christian nationalist ideals. Wilkins, together with Reconstructionist pastor and teacher Doug Wilson, who runs a cult-like empire out of Moscow, Idaho, together produced a book on this subject entitled Southern Slavery as It Was. Aside from a defense of slavery, they also argue that the Word of God itself, together with Orthodox Christianity, are under assault by gay and lesbian rights, you know, the homosexual agenda and legalized abortion. In that article on the Theological War Thesis, the authors state that, quote, to shield Christianity from these perceived threats, Wilson and Wilkins utilize a theological analysis that leads them to simultaneously build an argument that defends slavery as biblically justified, end quote. 
And going back to Mark Potok's article, he cites actually from their book. And just listen to how they actually defend the institution of slavery. In it, Wilson and Wilkins argued that, quote, slavery as it existed in the South was a relationship based on mutual affection and confidence, end quote. The excerpts read in part, quote, there has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. Slave life was to them, slaves, a life of plenty, of simple pleasures, of good food, clothes, and good medical care, end quote. So now how does Doug Wilson come into the story? Well, as I mentioned, He's uh, writing this book with Wilkins, and as the undisputed leader of a sprawling cult-like empire in Moscow, Idaho, not only has he remained the head pastor of Christ Church there since 1977, since then he's been very busy indeed. Just as a list of some of the things he's done, he started the Confederation of Reformed Evangelicals, or the CRE, a denomination that now includes 20 such churches holding to his theology. He also founded the Greyfriars Hall, a three-year ministerial training school based out of his church. Several graduates have gone on to plant similar churches nationwide. He also started the New St. Andrews College, which is also in Moscow. The college prominently displays large paintings of Civil War heroes and lists both Rushduni and Dabney as foundational thinkers, both biblically and theologically. In terms of his work, though, in Christian education, Wilson continues to push Rushduni's agenda as it relates to his strategy of taking dominion generationally versus schooling in Christian education. He founded the Logos School in Moscow, which is a private Christian academy built on what he calls the classical education model. He also formed the Association of Christian and Classical Schools primarily as an accrediting agency for such schools. Since then, there have been over 165 such schools started nationwide. The main problem with this is, as Potok points out, quote, many of them, these schools, along with thousands of homeschoolers, order their books from yet another Moscow-based Wilson creation, Canon Press. The firm has published and sells 31 books by Wilson, end quote. In other words, this is the danger. There's a great many Christian schools, as well as Christian homeschoolers, who are secondarily imbibing the work of people like Rushduni and Dabney through the efforts of Doug Wilson in terms of his books and his homeschooling curriculum, even though they may have never even heard of these two men. All right, so let's wrap this up. So at the risk of going too far off into the weeds by focusing on such influencers as Dabney, Rush Dooney, and Wilson and their justification of slavery, it's important to point out that all of their efforts are based on an aspect of a noble lie. Just like Trump's big lie about the election being stolen and how it continues to influence the Republican Party so many months after the election, these myths and conspiracy theories have an enduring power to affect future generations. And this, I think, is exactly why an overview like this one's so important. What may have begun as a noble lie to serve some politician or leader's purpose, if repeated enough times by enough people, it starts to gain the ring of truth to it. And furthermore, these noble lies can have devastating results. The noble lies of America's founding helped justify atrocities like slavery and the genocide of Native Americans, wars of colonial expansion and imperialism, and hideous human rights violations. And somehow, they were all done from a place of moral superiority, of the righteousness of the white cause. As we talked about for Hitler and the Nazis, the noble lies and the conspiracy theories that they told the German people resulted in the devastation of Europe as well as the mass murder of six million Jews. 
In our day, Donald Trump's big lie and his deep state conspiracy theories about voter fraud and a rigged election continue to have devastating consequences too. Not only is there a through line directly to the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, the lies haven't gone away, despite repeated efforts to set the record straight and fact-check Trump and the Republicans. What started out as lies have now turned into outright gaslighting. It wasn't Trump supporters that day, it was Antifa and Black Lives Matters rioters who were actually masquerading as a MAGA army. Oh no, the rioters weren't doing anything wrong, they were actually hugging and kissing the police, said Trump. They're merely tourists in the Capitol. They weren't there to try and hang Mike Pence and overturn the rightful election results, and on and on it goes. But the scary part is that more and more people are buying into it all as gospel truth. But now, it's directly led to the Republican Party attempting to pass numerous voter suppression laws in multiple states, as well as voting down a bipartisan investigation into the offense of January 6th. The big lie has fueled and spun off into conspiracy theories like QAnon, and Trumpism, as a dangerous cult, continues to deeply divide and polarize America. Lies have consequences, but understanding their origins can help us confront things like the roots of systemic racism, white supremacy, and how cult-like devotion to a leader or a cause can develop and grow into a dangerous movement. However, let me just end here by giving out a little bit of hope that America historically has not only failed to live up to its ostensibly lofty ideals, both in the past as well as currently, should not deter us from trying to make it a better place. Part of that includes taking a hard look at our past as a nation and seeking to come to grips with the reality of it all. And throughout its history, there have been always Americans who have spoken out against slavery, the genocide of Native Americans, or the various just wars over the centuries that America has become involved in. So what's the way forward? Well, we're going to give filmmaker Raul Peck the last word. He's going to offer us some sage advice. He reflects back on what he's learned from his interaction with others throughout his lifetime. He says that we should learn the lessons of our past by carefully listening to our elders rather than speaking. And he has learned, quote, to favor the collective over the individual, to look for the we before indulging in the I, to always place oneself within the world, not above. Thank you for joining me along this journey, looking at... The Noble Lie and American Mythology. I hope you found it helpful, interesting, and educational. Any thoughts, questions, comments, please let me know at MindShift2018 on Twitter. You can also look up the MindShift Podcast Facebook page and send me a message there. And let me know what you think. Thank you for coming along with me on this journey.